the products I have is something I inherited, but here I have something that they have developed from scratch. Which do you prefer? <laughs> developing from scratch. It's mm-hmm. 100 times easier than inheriting something and I have to fix it. <laughs> There's a lot. <laughs> you have a legacy and you have thousands of customers already using it. And there is this edge case that's not an edge case anymore. And it's really a painful corner that you need to fix and cannot be fixed in a way that's backwards compatible. Now, either I have to live with it and add band-aids on top of band-aids as we go on, or I have to do the breaking change and go through the pain of migrating or teaching thousands of customers how to follow the new correct way. You know, if it's a breaking change, you're going to have all those customers yelling at you over emails on phone calls. With that, I find developing something from scratch is way better. This episode is brought to you by Chronosphere. When it comes to observability, teams need a reliable, scalable, and efficient solution so they can know about issues well before their customers do. They need a solution that helps them move faster than the competition. And companies born in the cloud-native era often start with Prometheus for monitoring, which is obviously an amazing piece of software, but they quickly push it to its limits and often outgrow it. They run into issues with siloed data, missing long-term storage, and wasted engineering time firefighting the monitoring system versus delivering their application with confidence. They describe the system as a house of cards, where a single developer's seemingly benign change can overload the whole monitoring system, or they say they're flying blind because they pride themselves on making data-driven decisions, but losing visibility means they lose this competitive edge. Brian Sokol, VP of Engineering at DoorDash, has this to say about Chronosphere, quote, The visibility and control that Chronosphere's platform gives us to manage our observability data and costs are a game changer, especially with our unprecedented growth, end quote. Chronosphere is the observability platform for clouding of teams operating at scale. Learn more and get a demo at chronosphere.io. Again, chronosphere.io. Welcome to Go Time, your source for diverse discussions from around the Go community. We record live on Tuesdays at 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time. Subscribe at youtube.com slash changelog so you don't miss it. And don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at GoTimeFM. Special thanks to our partners at Fastly for shipping our show super fast to wherever you listen. Check them out at Fastly.com. Okay, here we go. Great evening here in Berlin. It's just finally nice warm weather. And I'm very happy to welcome my co-host, John. Hi. Hi, Natalie. How are you? Good. I hope you're also doing well. A little tired, but uh, I think that's to be expected with a newborn in the house. Congratulations for that. It's crazy. Oh, thanks. <laughs> we are joined today by a crew of caddy people, Matt and Mohammed. So Matt is the author of the Caddy web server, and you're working on it full-time, uh, relying completely on sponsorships. And Mohammed is a product manager by day and a gopher student by night, and also the creator of Caddy SSH. Hi, where are you joining us from? I am joining from Saudi Arabia. Must be super late for you. Yep. And I'm joining you from Utah. 
So we're kind of like across all so many different time zones. It's always fun to have those shows, the, the benefit of the internet. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about yourselves. And your intro question will be not an animal that starts with the first letter of your name, but when did you start using Go? Mohammed, you go first. <laughs> okay. I started playing around with Go sometime in 2014. So in 2013, I was doing a program of uh, networks and system administration. I was chatting with a friend who's a software engineer, and he kept telling me, like, there is a new language called Go by Google, and it returns the error, so you're forced to deal with it, and you never forget it. And in 2014, I was doing a web dev job as my full-time. That we were using, we were a Java shop, and I was so much annoyed by Java that I decided to look into this new language my friend has been bugging me about. And I got hooked since then. Very cool. I started writing Go about probably about 10 years ago now, 10 or 11 years ago, right around Go 1. And uh, yeah, because our company was a, a .NET shop and we were looking at easier to deploy, faster alternatives, and just kind of a more fun language overall. And so then I started using it in, um, we wrote a couple products in it, and then I started using it for personal projects and uh, including a web server. So that's how that all started. What was the web server that you were using at work back at the time? It was a mix of Nginx or Apache, whichever had better copy-paste examples. <laughs> I could never figure Apache out, at least. Yeah, lots of... Uh, but also Nginx was not very straightforward without those examples, I would say, at least for me. My experience with both of those has been you figure out enough to get whatever you need done done, and then like you forget about it in six months, so then you have to figure it all out again. So like nobody really understands it. They just learn enough to do what they need to do. Yeah, there's a lot of moving parts too. I found myself setting up like four or five different components just to get a basic website up and running. So I wanted to kind of simplify things. So it's pretty much like the uh, the XKDC comic of Git, except it's now web servers. Yeah, I suppose so. You call up the friend who knows how to configure it. Yeah. I wonder if these days, Matt, you're making it worse because anymore, most of the people I do, like talk with are using Caddy. So finding people who know how to use Nginx and Apache is like going to become a, a rarity. And when you've got a company relying on it, that could be a, a problem. <laughs> I don't see that as a problem. Well, it could be a problem for that company for a short period, at least. Could be, could be. We are encouraging all companies to switch to Caddy. So, so I guess we can jump into the Caddy stuff then. Cause I, I think Natalie, correct me if I'm wrong. I think the goal is to talk a little bit about Caddy and then start talking about this project Muhammad's working on as well and go in a little more depth there. Yeah, definitely. And for those who are less familiar, for the two people who are listening are slightly less familiar with uh, Caddy. So, so far, those people figured out that we're talking about a web server. But uh, what, what is special about that web server, unlike Nginx and, and friends? Well, you'll find that it comes with all the benefits of a Go program. So it's easy to deploy um, and it has no external dependencies. And it has memory safety, which you don't get from C servers like Apache, Nginx, and Envoy. And with Caddy 2, we have made it kind of a very powerful platform on which you can deploy your Go services, or and you can extend it. It's pretty much infinitely extensible. It's not like you know writing some Lua code or like some little scripting thing that's interpreted. It's it's you compile in your Go code and natively, and so you're getting like native CPU instructions for your extensions. And so there's a ton of benefits there. And probably the thing that people mostly talk about when they think about what's special about Caddy is that it uses HTTPS by default. 
So it's the only server that does that automatically and by default without needing any config. It will just try and make TLS work for your site and manage that all automatically. So I can say for myself, that was pretty much the original draw to Caddy was you want to set up some sort of HTTPS and, and setting it up in other places has always historically been a pain in the butt. I remember like the first time I had to get a, a certificate and I was probably a teenager at the time. And it was one of those things where like trying to do that while not having the money to really want to do it for a side project was like a nightmare for the longest time. So seeing things like Let's Encrypt or is it Zero SSL? Is that one of the other ones? There's a bunch of them out there. Yep. There's a few others. Like seeing different companies like that that are offering like much easier options out of the box has been pretty awesome. All right. So Matt, Caddy is written in Go entirely. Is that correct? Yep. Pure Go. Okay. And Mohammed, you, I believe, wrote an extension. So Matt was saying that it's extensible. Can you verify that it's that's easy to do? Can you talk a little bit about that process? Oh, it made my life a lot simpler. So I, I only had to focus on the logic of the SSH server, as in authentication, session management, and uh, TTY and all of that. And that was a breeze because I didn't need to write any of the logic for the listeners and the reload management and the config management loading and all of that stuff. It was all handled by Caddy and I only had to focus on my own project. You said that you're a gopher in the evenings and by day you are a project manager. So why, why going on a web server as a fun project? Was that a need? Was that just something fun that you found? Yeah, my day job is not into the software development side of things. It's still related to tech. I'm a product manager of the payment gateway at a local bank. So I didn't get to practice programming day by day. And programming at night in the evening is basically my stress relief. And from all the projects, web server is the interesting one? Well, Caddy was fun enough and interesting and easy to contribute to. There are a lot of sides and angles that you can nibble at. And at the time, whenever I started getting involved, Caddy version 2 was still being written. It was still in the beta phases. So there were a lot of angles that I managed to look at and uh, work on. So it was kind of, um, let's say, a ramp to get on. So it's interesting that you said that it was easy to get involved in and easy to contribute to. So that, that sounds like a fun place for starters. Can you tell a little bit more about this for people who want to get involved and are not sure how to start, where to start, what makes starting easy? Yeah, sure. So there are a lot of sides that can be looked at. And the architecture of Caddy is, it's engineered well enough that if you're looking at a certain handler, for example, most likely you don't need to look anywhere else besides that particular package or one or two files that you need to look at. And it, depending on what area you're trying to get at, you will find something to work on. If you want to work on the CLI, it's there. If you want to work on the config loading and reloading and the config structure itself, the configuration files, it's all there. Uh, if you want to write a handler that simplifies lives of a particular process in the web server, you can look at some of those. There is a ton of things that are in there. Uh, you want to look at PKI, it's in there. And you will always, it's the nature of projects. There are, flat, there are fractal nature. There are so many things that you can work on. 
and you will always find something that's either good first issue or something that requires more depth and knowledge about the project itself, its architecture, or the go runtime. If you want to look at performance, you can go dig in there. That will be a, a bit, perhaps a bit challenging. If you want to pick up some easy fruits, it's all in there. For example, one of the uh, first things I worked on was basically looking at the warnings or the uh, the messages Golint was uh, Golint was giving Golint CI, and was basically saying change the order of these fields in the struct to make it more compact and stuff like that. So it was easy to get into the project and learn more about it as I worked on it more and more, picking up stuff like that. I think there are still some low-hanging fruit for other beginners or fresh contributors who want to look at. You can basically fire up the project on VS Code and run the linter or uh, any of the available linter, whether Golang CI lint or whatever, and find some areas to fix. And we have a few in the issue list that uh, can be looked at. Yeah, I might also jump in and say it's you can learn a lot from hacking on Caddy, but it might not be the best project for like absolute beginners if you're absolutely new to Go or absolutely new to open source. Just because of its sheer size, there's a lot of packages and different pieces. So it might be a little overwhelming if you're brand new, but if you're experienced with Go and or experienced with open source, it's a lot easier to, to kind of work through that feedback cycle. So Mohammed's been from the beginning, it's been awesome about like optimizations and little like nuanced things that I never thought to figure out. So that was really cool. Is it complicated to write such an extension? Um, how much time would you say such a project will take? Or it depends if the extension would be complicated or simple. I guess Mohammed could answer too. He's probably written more like third party extensions than I have. But I think it depends. If it's a simple if it's a simple extension, some extensions are just a couple lines of code. Others are thousands of lines. Just depends what they do. I imagine Muhammad's SSH server, I think it took two years to put that together. That's a huge app module. Well, the two years is because my time is divided between work, school, and this side project, plus other, my personal life. And this is why it took such a stretch. It shouldn't have taken two years. Honestly. So when you're talking about these extensions, I assume with Caddy, based on my knowledge of it, like it's a server where you start it up and you provide it like a config file and it you know sets up a server in some way based on that. So whether it's grabbing a certificate for your domain and, and reverse proxying it to something on localhost or something like that. When you build an extension, what exactly is that doing? Is that giving it new config variables that it can then take and do stuff with? Or is it something else aside from that? Yeah. So at its core, all Caddy knows how to do is there's like four keys in its config. Uh, there's like admin, logs, storage, and apps. And all it knows how to do is set up admin and logs, like logging, so you can see output. And then storage and apps are all modular. They're all extensible. So apps, Caddy expects apps to fulfill an interface that have a start and stop method. That's it. So it just calls start in all the apps when a config is loaded and calls stop when it's unloaded. Beyond that, it's up to the module, the app module, to do its job. So the HTTP server has you know, a start function, and when it's called, that's when it starts its engine, so to speak, and, and starts serving your site. And then when it's stopped, it shuts down gracefully and 
So Caddy doesn't know anything about HTTP, really. And so that's that's why you see now, I don't know if, if this is clear to the listeners yet, but the implication with Muhammad's work with Caddy SSH is that you can now deploy a Caddy instance that does all that you like need to do with one unified configuration. So you need to run an HTTPS server, you put that in your config, you need a memory safe SSH server, you put that in your config, and you just deploy this one binary that's static and has no dependencies and you know is memory safe and such and takes care of all the TLS for you. Obviously SSH doesn't necessarily use TLS, but the idea is that it's kind of your one-stop shop for memory safe static deployments. This episode is brought to you by Acuity, a new platform that brings fully managed Argo CD and enterprise services to the cloud or on-premise. The platform is a versatile Kubernetes operator for handling cluster deployments that GitOps way. And I'm here with Kelsey Hightower, angel investor and advisor to Acuity. Kelsey, why are you excited about Argo CD and what's happening here with Acuity? When I think about Argo CD, it represents the transition from traditional CI CD. You know, you have a big server with a built-in workflow engine, and you can only do what that system can do, whether it's Jenkins, whether it's Spinnaker, you name it. Those things are tend to be all-in solutions, and they're all predicated on having like their own built-in workflows, UIs, and ways of doing things. And then when I think about kind of the Argo CD, that whole open source movement kind of backed by the ideas we saw in the Kubernetes world, which was each of those steps is nothing more than just a step in a workflow. And after 10, 20 years of doing CI/CD, how best to represent those steps? And it turns out this whole container thing is probably the best way to have little snippets of logic sit at each of those steps in the workflow, and then you can kind of exchange them and share them to build any pipeline you want. So the way to look at this is Kubernetes has never had a workflow engine or tool. And so when you think about kind of Argo workflow or Argo CD, which is kind of a specialized workflow, kind of attacking the how do you roll out software problem, that's the way I would think about it. So if you're all in on Kube and you like the Kubernetes ecosystem, then you kind of have a choice of workload types. And I would probably just say it's another workload type you can put in your toolbox. So if you got something that can benefit from a workflow engine and reuse the logic that you already have in containers, it kind of feels like the perfect fit. The perfect fit. All right. Thanks, Kelsey. Well, the next step is to head to acuity.io slash changelog. They are inviting all of our listeners to join the closed beta. Again, acuity.io slash changelog. Links are in the show notes. So, Muhammad, if I were to install your Caddy SSH extension and to run it, this would allow me to SSH into like the server that's running Caddy, correct? Yeah, exactly. Okay. And the idea was to give it useful defaults and things like that so that people setting this up are less likely to make mistakes that are, I assume, pretty common when setting things up like that? Yeah, especially with the SSH, because over the years, SSH has been around since the 90s, and... Uh, the defaults have been changing and, and improving over time, but we have so many blogs and tutorials written that were probably written for the early 2000s while we are here in 2022 and 
SHA-1 isn't safe anymore, and RSA, you need to have a minimum of 2048 bits and, and so on. And at the same time, you find those tutorials or blog posts saying, well, generate an RSA 1024-bit key, and you should be all right to use with your SSH server. The goal is just like Caddy now is working with safe defaults for TLS and HTTPS connections and have modern representation or defaults for the certificates, we'll do the same for the SSH server. So one of the things that I had is, or I, I made sure to implement is the keys that are generated automatically, they follow the modern recommendations. And for example, if there is no RSA key available, minimum one will be generated automatically for you and will be 1496 bit by default. The other key that's automatically generated is the ECDSA, but the regular DSA isn't generated and so on. All of that is written in the comments in the, in the, in the docs, in the code docs itself. So getting into this, I assume that this means you had to actually like learn about all of the like proper ways to do things now versus the past. And you had mentioned that reading blogs, like sometimes you find blogs that were written in 2000 when security practices might be a little bit different. Like, would you have any advice to people or like, how did you go about managing that process of trying to figure out if the, what you're reading is actually up to date and, and like accurate versus, you know, understanding what current practices are versus like, oh, this is an old practice. I shouldn't be doing that. That's a tough one. One of the things that I had to look at, that's an easy one to look at is look at when was it published? If it was published in the nineties, cross it out, look for something more recent. And I'm not a cryptographer, I'm going to admit this, but I know from a few readings that elliptic curves is a bit, it's a bit controversial, probably. And if you know that, you might correct me. But at the same time, there is a strong recommendation for it. And this is why one of the defaults that I opted for is to have elliptic curve BSA. The same thing for RSA. Uh, we know from recent findings and the that RSA 1024 uh, bits isn't safe anymore, so higher bits and so on. It's more following the recommendations of well-known cryptographers. For example, I I remember reading one of some of the stuff I've came across and I used was a few blog posts by Matthew Green. I don't remember exactly the titles, but it was part of my research that I went through and I found which algorithms should I use and which not. So when you're going through these algorithms, has Go been a language where you found a lot of them have already implemented for you? Or have you had to like go and, and try to implement some of these on your own? No, 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 I never needed to implement any of those on my own, which is delightful. Uh, Go had everything badly included. Again, one of the things that's uh, are readily available is the ID25519. That was already in there. It's part of the uh, standard lib. I just had to only grab it from there and generate the keys with it. Same for all of them. The crypto package of the Go standard library is pretty comprehensive for my needs. So one of the skills you picked up in this project is cryptography. And is there any other interesting skill that you picked up along the way? Oh, I had to learn a lot about pseudo teletype. That had a ton of, of stuff that I had to go through, whether it was for uh, Unix systems or for Windows, especially on the Windows side, because it didn't have the PTY interface, and then they developed the CompTY interface, but it had its complexity, so I had to wade through all the 
when this provided DLLs and so on. So definitely PTY was a really interesting area to to work on and learn about. I'm glad you did that because I don't even really want to go there. <laughs> Sounds kind of gnarly. Oh, it is. It's funny because here we are. We we have the basic kind of system we work on almost always virtual machines, yet we're still when we're switching to a server, the other side, and the name still implies it, it says teletype, at sudo teletype, and it will tell you, or you will tell it, you will tell the server, here are my screen dimensions, and give me the text or the, the output based on those screen dimensions. And when, when you change the window of your shell, your SSH client will tell the server, okay, these are the new dimensions of width and height. Now resize everything and give me back the response, which is strange because the remote machine isn't really connected to a screen. It's emulated all the way down. And it all goes back to, I think, 60s or the 50s, whenever they had actual teletypes connected to the actual hardware and it actually had to tell it, yes, I have a screen of this particular size, and you have to redraw everything to that size. But now here we are in 2022, and we still have to deal with all of that because, hey, we are emulating everything down to to the pixel because we have legacy. I was just looking at the list of modules. If you go to the Caddy download page or the modules page, and you look at the SSH app that you know that you wrote, it registers a lot of plugins or modules. I see SSH actors, actor matchers, ask, lots of ask and authentication, different providers and flows, config, loaders and matchers, session authorizers, signers, even SFTP subsystem, it looks like. This is pretty thorough. What can you do? What can you do with this exactly? Okay. So the actors are equivalent or analogous to handlers in HTTP. And the actor matchers are analogous to the matchers in the HTTP app. So just like you can define multiple possible actions or handlers for a particular for request based on certain criteria, now you can use the matchers to match. If it's user John, then uh, run this actor. And if it's user Natalie, run this other actor. And if it's Matt, just, sorry, shut it out. This is cool. So you can kind of compose your own SSH logic with JSON in a memory-safe SSH server. And it looks like you have two actors so far, a shell and a static response. So you can start a shell for the user who logged in or just write a static, like a string, basically, to the, the user. And it's cool. So you can match on various SSH connection properties like user, their IP address, their group, their protocol extensions, their critical options um, in the certificate or the user. Like this is really neat. For the shell actor, there are a few enhancements that have been working on locally. I know there are certain areas or gaps in the implementation that uh, I have picked up and uh, fixed locally and I haven't pushed yet. Because C is in the way. So the shell needs a lot of enhancements. There are a lot of actors that could be implemented. Perhaps proxy. I don't know. It takes a bit of creativity. Shell and static response were the least creative things. And they were probably the most mostly used 
actors or expected functionalities out there. And this is why I went with them. I could see this being extended to you to implement like um, custom like SSH apps. I've seen kind of a resurgence lately in like graphical SSH based applications. And I could see this maybe being a good platform to, to launch and deploy those. So you can deploy your website, but you can also deploy like an SSH app. So if users SSH into it, you can have this nice TTY. That, that's really cool. It's retro, but it, and it's cool. I think one of the ones I saw recently was by Charm, I think was the company. Yeah. They had like a self-hosted Git server that like made it look all pretty and stuff when you SSH'd in. But every time I see one of those, I just think that like that's its own style of programming, making something like look good in the terminal and like doing all that stuff. Like Mohammed, you had said you had to figure all that out. And like, I feel like that's a skill that if somebody asked your average developer to, to go build that right now, they would need some sort of reference material because it's just not something people do as much anymore. Making anything look pretty is difficult and takes a skill. That's true. So Mohammed, you, you've spent, it sounds like two years, granted it was a part-time project working on this and it's, it's a massive extension. If somebody was going to get started building like an extension for Caddy or, you know, getting involved in that sort of thing, do you have any recommendations for them that you've learned throughout the whole process or is there, have there been things that you wish were different? As Matt said, there are four basic concepts that you need to look at. And if you're implementing a module for Caddy, you're 99% of the time or probably 100% of the time you're implementing an interface and you're registering your module as part of a namespace where Caddy can find it and load, load it up. So I would say find exactly where within Caddy do you want to add your module, which particular functionality or namespace you're looking at. Is it a listener wrapper? Is it a handler? Is it a connection policy? And then find the interface that you need to implement for that area and start from there. You can start small and then add more features into it. And I admit this is, this is pretty much a generic advice for all projects, but this is what it is like for Caddy. And you need to look at how your config structure is going gonna, is gonna to look like. So consider how your JSON, how would you like your JSON configuration to look like and move from there. And this was the only complex part or the difficult part for me to work on. Which shape of JSON structure of the configuration is the nicest to work with or the one that makes most sense? So if you, once you figure your JSON out, everything is easy from there. Yeah, I wrestled with that too. I think I when I first started writing Caddy 2, the first three or four months was just me just going back and forth on what the JSON should look like. So Caddy's native config structure is JSON, but most people use the Caddy file for ease of use, but we actually have quite a few users who do use the JSON because you can program it, you can automate things a little easier, you can generate JSON, everything compiles down to JSON. You can always output JSON, you can ingest JSON everywhere. It's very ubiquitous. And so we, we actually do have a lot of like uh, business users with in the JSON. So that might be helpful if you want to contribute is knowing that like your native config, what that looks like and kind of getting that right because that'll impact a lot of future um, capabilities as well. Matt, I think you had said that pretty much everything inside of Caddy is essentially a module that's running. Am I re recalling that correctly? Yeah, everything except for its core like 
module loading and logging and its core API and such. Yeah. So are there anything like any of those like built-in extensions that would be worth checking out for somebody who's like just getting started versus like the ones that are a lot more complex? Yeah, I would check out extensions that are or modules that are like what you want to build. So if you want to build an HTTP handler that handles requests, then you should look at HTTP handlers. A simple one is like the static response handler where you just hard code a response. That's a pretty good one. Or uh, if you want to write an app, the HTTP app is pretty complex. The TLS app might be a little better. There's also the PKI app that's even simpler. So you could, yeah, just look at the kind of module that you want to implement. And we have documentation pages explaining what the different kinds of modules are and kind of how that works. John, you asked Muhammad what is uh, his tip for people who want to start. And Muhammad, you get the, you gave a very good answer of start something small and kind of build on top of that. Don't make that too complex. And do you feel that your experience as a as a product manager helped you start in an organized way and if yes, if you found something that works well in your team at work and you took with you to this, to building this, what are some tips that you can share? Yeah, it's been really a, a great feedback loop where at my job as a product manager, I have to fix something or develop something in a certain manner for customers. And I know the product is going to be large, so I have to structure it in a way where it is it is extensible and easier to implement new functionalities that will not make it a breaking change for the customers. And at the same time, in my project, I have something similar where I need to develop something. But the only difference is at my job, the products I have is something I inherited. But here I have something that I have to develop from scratch. Which do you prefer? <laughs> Developing from scratch. It's mm-hmm. 100 times easier than inheriting something and I have to fix it. <laughs> There's a lot. <laughs> you have a legacy and you have thousands of customers already using it. And there is this edge case that's not an edge case anymore. And it's really a painful corner that you need to fix. and cannot be fixed in a way that's backwards compatible. And now either I have to live with it and kind of add band-aids on top of band-aids as we go on. Or I have to do the breaking change and go through the pain of migrating or teaching thousands of customers how to follow the new correct way. And, you know, if it's a breaking change, you're going to have all those customers yelling at you over emails on phone calls. And with that, I find developing something from scratch is way better. The way it feeds back is... For me as a product manager, one of the things I took upon myself because I was frontline support at one one point in time and then I shifted to product management. And what I do all the time is I take an hour or two every day and I sit with the frontline support team and I ask them for feedback. What do the customers complain about? And when I started working on the project, uh, the SSH app, I had to take similar perspective to that. Like, I'm going to structure this app in a way that will be used in a critical function and critical areas. Now, I need it to be done in a way where the support is going to be easy. The customer onboarding is going to be nice and simple and straightforward. And it should be intuitive. And this is where 
I had to take on the, the support hat and the frontline support hat. It's like, what is going to be a stress point for them? And how do I work around that? I don't know if that makes sense or not. This is an interesting answer. It makes a lot of sense. And it also makes me think about people who take the path from project or product management into developer. Because you hear a lot about people going from software into product management. But uh, I have to say, I personally know less people who took this path. But it sounds like this gives you such a toolbox that you, you wouldn't have otherwise. So that's an interesting thing to think about. I think more software should be written like that with that approach. I think in general, there's a lot of people who get into software development and like, I don't know how to describe this. It's almost like they view things like this is the way it should be for good software. And they ignore the fact that there are real business needs that need to be achieved and like things that need to be maintained. And I think it takes, especially like new grads who are going into software, it takes them a little bit to realize that like there is a business that business actually matters more than like the actual software being the prettiest thing in the world. So being a project manager probably like makes that very clear. Like the only thing that matters is my project moving forward. Whereas a software developer, I know some software developers that could probably sit there rewriting the same application for like six years, trying to like make it perfect. This episode is brought to you by Square. Millions of businesses depend on Square partners to build custom solutions using Square products and APIs. When you become a Square Solutions partner, you get to leverage the entire Square platform to build robust e-commerce websites, smart payment integrations, and custom solutions for Square sellers. You don't just get access to SDKs and APIs. You get access to the exact SDKs and the exact APIs that Square uses to build the Square platform and all their applications. This is a partnership that helps you grow. Square has partner managers to help you develop your strategy, close deals, and gain customers. There are literally millions of Square sellers who need custom solutions so they can innovate for their customers and build their businesses. You get incentives and profit sharing. You can earn a 25% SaaS revenue share, seller referrals, product bounties, and more. You get alpha access to APIs and new products. You get product, marketing, tech, and sales support. And you're also able to get Square certified. You can get training on all things Square so you can deliver for Square sellers. The next step is to head to changelaw.com slash Square and click become a solutions partner. Again, changelaw.com slash Square. And by our friends at Retool. Retool helps teams focus on product development and customer value you not building and maintaining internal tools it's a low-code platform built specifically for developers no more ui libraries no more hacking together data sources and no more worrying about access controls start shipping internal apps that move your business forward in minutes with basically zero uptime reliability or maintenance burden on your team some of the best teams out there trust retool brex coinbase plaid doordash legal genius amazon allbirds peloton and so many more. The developers at these teams trust Retool as their platform to build their internal tools, and that means you can too. It's free to try, so head to retool.com slash changelog. Again, retool.com slash changelog. So, gentlemen, <laughs> what is 
the unpopular opinion that you brought on board? Mine is that vanilla JS is enough for anyone. Okay. Do you mean like modern vanilla JS? Yeah, of course. But I just, I'm writing a kind of a front end app in my spare time right now. And there definitely like are a few little pain points, but it's kind of like those pain points in Go where you just write a less function or, you know, something like that. So you do that in JavaScript, in vanilla JavaScript, you just, it's such a, like the traditional way of building web applications, it just runs so fast compared to, and it's way less clunky than like a lot of modern ones with a, just kind of a, a plain stack, nothing fancy. So I kind of wonder if half that issue stems from the fact that for the longest time, vanilla JS was very hard to use by itself, at least. And like, I agree with you that it's gotten way, way better to the point that if somebody started over, I'd be like, you can start with vanilla JS, but I don't know if I'd use it to build an entire front end or not. I haven't tried recently, so I can't really speak to like what that feels like. But I can definitely say that I understand why people are like in the mindset of that's the way we do it. Yeah, I mean, maybe there's a place for frameworks, but I'm not even using jQuery this time. And it's really been a breeze putting this together. And I understand what's going on. The DOM is a weird place, and there are definitely quirks. JavaScriptisms that are just a little strange. You got to read some documentation carefully or you get bit pretty hard, but it's just, I have full control over things that are going on. I know exactly the performance of something. I know I just, I have a very good grasp of it just because it's just, it's bare browser, so to speak. I'll just say that there already one disagreement showed up on Slack. So kudos. Oh, yeah. There will be a survey afterwards on Twitter and uh, <laughs> see how that predicts the outcome. Yeah. Mohammed, how about you? All right. Mine is Microsoft Excel is a net negative in this world. No caveats at all. <laughs> Can you elaborate? <laughs> I've seen coworkers spending countless hours trying to figure out some weird issue Excel is doing, and it's just a waste of time. And when I come around to help them, what I do is I take their Excel file, convert it to CSV somehow, run it through SQLite, and do whatever they need to do, generate whatever information or value they need to generate, and then take that output, put it back into Excel. And most of the time, whatever you're doing in Excel, it'd be a lot easier if you just learn some SQL and it's easy to learn. I can teach some business people how to use SQL. Learn that. Use SQLite. There are some tools. There is DB Browser. There is tons of other stuff out there. And just ditch Excel, throw it in the bin, have no regrets. So you're talking about spreadsheets in general? Yeah, yeah. spreadsheets in general. So like Google Sheets and yeah. If you're in need for some database or something, please reach out for SharePoint. Use whatever. There, there are tons of alternatives. I mostly agree, I think. <laughs> so I like mostly agree, but then I guess the hard part there, and this is like kind of like Muhammad saying, like we need to educate people on using SQL, which I think would be great if people understood basic ways to like do queries or even just like simple ways to automate things. It'd be great to see like, a generation of kids growing up knowing how to at least write a little script because like I've definitely seen people sit on a spreadsheet doing things that they're like they're manually typing in that it's like you should not be manually typing in that stuff or trying to do what you're doing but on the other side I think there's just a whole generation of people working that 
are just not going to learn something new. And that puts you in a weird spot of like, how do you keep that still going while the other is like, need something better? It feels like Copilot just writes equal for you. I don't know if I'd trust Cop. You're talking about like, like the uh, AI code stuff? The GitHub autocomplete thing, yeah. yeah. I don't know if I'd trust that fully to, to write all my queries, but that'd be interesting to try though. It's hard for me too, because I use spreadsheets for like simple stuff all the time where I just don't want to code and it's just real quick to throw something. Now, granted, most of my spreadsheets are like throwaway spreadsheets of like throwing a couple things in here real quickly, doing some calculations, and it's like a calculator almost. I'm kind of the same way. I use it like a disposable calculator, simple stuff. If I start looking up formulas, I'm switching to SQLite. Well, we also have a rank of uh, the top three unpopular opinion, the top three unpopular unpopular opinion, which is kind of popular opinion. So looks like we have a candidate for each from this episode. That's fun. So Matt, I have another question for you. Oh no. How often do you get grief over using the init function for your modules or for your extensions? <laughs> More than once. More than once. The counter argument from the, those people is that the importing package, so the caddy like main should be calling, not only importing, but also calling the, the uh, register module function. I don't really see the point in that though. I feel like if you're importing it, you want to plug it in. I'm not like saying one thing one way or the other. I just, I, I laugh that like you go to the documentation and like the third line in the, or extending caddy quick start is, is a funk in it. And I'm like, I feel like this right here has got to lead to a lot of hate mail of some sort. Although, I mean, given your use case, I'm not, I personally don't know a much better option for what you're doing where you need a bunch of things imported and built with it. I mean, it's either the two lines of code that you add to, well, more than that, you'd have to import the package and then you'd have to know all the module types in that package and call a register module yourself. I don't think that's necessary. Like, I think if you're using a package that has n number of modules, just plug them in. Like, they're already, they're already there. So I think Caddy has some other unpopular design decisions that I still stand by for the most part. Some of them especially so. Like, some people still don't love the JSON thing, but... The JSON thing is wonderful and you don't have to use it. So we could just make a list of unpopular caddy opinions. <laughs> yeah. To be fair, the number of unpopular caddy opinions has come down recently. Um, like the last, since caddy two, I think caddy has been a little more on the popular side overall. Um, there's definitely still some debates and some things I don't think there are good answers to, but come at me. <laughs> we'll see. We can talk about things. I think what you're saying is, to me, at least, I view what you're doing as you're trying to choose like the lesser of two evils, essentially, of, of like ways to approach a problem. And it is a tough one with the extension because making an application, I, I don't think many people have actually written software that needs to be extensible, especially to like build with other code. And that's like a very unique problem to solve, I think. Yeah. I think Mark Bates has done it with Buffalo stuff before, but that's like one of the few people I know that's even like gone into that realm at all. Most projects, I just don't think, support it. They'd just be like, these are the modules we have. If you want others, good luck. Yeah. I mean, sometimes there is still some debate over Caddy's module like design in terms of um, the fact that they have to be compiled in. Some people kind of hate that, but a lot of people love it, and it has a lot of advantages. What would the alternative be? Having like a second server running that it communicates with? Yeah, so there's a couple options. You could do like some sort of RPC thing or like inter-process communication to so IPC. But that has performance penalties because you're going through the kernel 
You can embed like a scripting language and have some sort of interpreter. There's a few Go interpreters out there or like interpreters written in Go for various languages like Lua or, or Go actually, and probably some other languages as well, like Starlark and such. But then you don't know your code is broken until it comes to your runtime. And so it's like, I don't know, it just made more sense. Just compile the code, get native performance, ship a static binary. Don't worry about it. Like you don't want to be messing with things in production anyway. So Yeah, I don't think that's an easy one to to come up with a perfect solution for, I guess. There isn't one, but it's a pretty good one. Because I'm thinking of like VS Code where like every extension's JavaScript, but like then there's the fact that it's not that JavaScript is terribly inefficient or anything, but it's definitely not going to be as performant as other languages in most cases. So like you have that limitation when you're setting up things. I know I don't VS Code doesn't seem to have it quite as bad, but I know with Adam that was one of the issues with that editor was that because it was JavaScript, there were definitely times where coming from like Sublime Text it felt slower. Mm, yeah. And I think part of that was because they wanted something extensible and Sublime Text. It was extensible, but it was Python, and it was a little bit harder to do, if I recall correctly. There is one more really maybe unpopular decision that I'm like lukewarm about, uh, and that is that you can't set like a global config in the caddy file. You can't say like give one line of configuration there and have it apply to the whole config to all your sites automatically. You have, we, we have snippets, so you can put it in a snippet and then import it into each of your sites, but you still have to put that import line. Some people want the caddy file to work like cascading style sheets, but if you've ever written CSS, you'll know why I don't love that idea. Anyway, that's all I can think of. Cool. To finish, I'll say that the show notes have the links to extending caddy and also to the caddy SSH extension by Mohammed. And we will also include the XKCD that you mentioned in the very beginning. Thanks everyone who joined and listened and responded in the chat. And thank you, Mohammed and Matt, for joining. And we'll wish everyone a good rest of your day, whatever time it is. Here's another unpop results roundup for you. John Sabados thinks generics were a bad idea, an opinion that continues to be controversial, but not all that unpopular. 56% of gophers agree with him. Here's an unpopular one. On that same episode, Misha Avrek opined on the future of programming languages. He said he believes CSS will someday replace all of them. And unsurprisingly, 95% of poll takers beg to differ. Was Misha serious or just trolling? Go back and listen to episode 223 and you can be the judge. 65% of people disagree with Chris when he said Go needs a fork. Meanwhile, Ian and Johnny scored some popular opinions. Ian thinks monoliths are the way to go, and 86% agree. Johnny says, don't organize your code at first. 81% of people are with him on that. Okay, last one. Are you ready for the most unpopular opinion in recent history? With a whopping 97% disagreement, Jeff Hernandez thinks all kinds of yogurt are just bad. Great work, Jeff. We all think you're wrong. Don't forget to follow GoTimeFM on Twitter so you can take part in the Unpop polls. Come on now, the Gopher community needs you. Don't let us down. Special thanks to our friends at Fastly for CDNing for us, to Breakmaster Cylinder for the fresh beats, and to you for listening. We appreciate you. Next up, have you heard Go is big in Berlin? Natalie is joined by Ole Bulbuk, a co-organizer of the Berlin Go user group, to discuss the phenomenon. 
That's what's coming up next time on Go Time. Mm-hmm.